Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Gaming by Design. My name is Colin, and in these podcasts we aim to discuss the mechanics of video games. Over the last two episodes we've looked at making believable characters and morality in video games. However, if you'd like to suggest a topic that you'd like to hear us talk about in the future, you can email us at gamingbydesign at gmail.com or get in touch via our blog, which is at gamingbydesign.blogspot.com. Also, it's very important that you're made aware that these views are our own and not those of our employees, either past, present or future. Right. This week, once again, I am joined by Richard. Hello. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, so what has happened since the last podcast is after editing, I found out that you swore so much yes. that I had to put an explicit tag on. Yeah, which it's it surprised me that it took two episodes for that to come to pass. Um, I have a problem with swearing. What's weird about it is I can't set the explicit tag for the individual podcasts. Okay, so because I said... Um, Wait, because it's explicit now, so nothing I can say can make it more explicit, can it? Well, the point is that now you have free reign to swear, which ironically will probably mean that you swear less. Uh, we'll see about that. So basically, because I said, like, fuck or shit once, it now means that this entire podcast is, like, a kind of adult one. But we'll probably get more hits because of it. Do you remember, um, we probably can't mention the game, but someone did once tell us of they wanted an 18 rating for their game. And do you remember this? Uh, I think so. What? And it was—it looked like it was going for a 15. Um, so they just basically put more swearing in. Yes, I do remember this story now. They—they they just changed the uh, the FMV so they would have more swearing. The voice actors would have more swearing, and thus it would get an 18 rating that it deserved. Anyway, that's enough talking about the last week's podcast, which I, which I think are getting better. I think we're getting a little bit more experienced. Um, I think slowly. Um, yeah, um, episode two I thought went quite well. I think we covered most of the things I wanted to say about making believable characters. It was kind of a, uh, uh, kind of a something we could have gone on about all day. It's probably good we didn't. Yeah, it's a very deep topic, um, but I guess we shouldn't dwell on it too much. All the things that we've missed, I guess, um, we'll have to wait for some time in the future. Um, yeah, yeah. I think what was interesting about last week is that it started as a discussion on making believable characters, and what became clear to me is that that was kind of a misnomer. That making believable characters isn't really what the goal of game characters are. Making game characters that are good is the goal of games. So basically, we're, we're already deconstructing our own podcasts in the same way we deconstruct games. I think so. I think it, I think that would be uh, be quite ironic. I'm I'm sure in today's topic we'll end up deconstructing whether or not we should even be doing this. So at the end of last week's podcast, I said that this week we'd be discussing something like, I can't remember, how games teach or hand-holding in games. Uh, but we've been so busy uh, that we didn't really want to think too much about it. Like, it's just been crazy busy at work. So instead, we've gone for something that we think is a little bit easier to talk about and just as entertaining. And uh, do you want to introduce that, Richard? Yes, I do. So this week, uh, we'll be discussing fear in games scariness, terror, words like that. So most people can be frightened by video games, and what we're going to look at today is how is fear generated in games? Why does it sometimes succeed so well? Sometimes why does it fail so badly? Today we'll be covering the tricks, the techniques, and the best examples of games that make us cack our pants. And this time, which is always something that I envisioned we do with the podcast, is we're also going to have a bit of a bit more designing at the end. We're going to also look at how we would design things and maybe our ideas on design because you know we are people who do work in the games industry we should be able to design as needs be if i'm unable to do this then this will reflect badly on my career i'm looking yeah i'm looking particularly at you because you are employed as a designer but nobody tries to make me design 
on my feet. Well, firstly, we'll be looking at examples that we think are fun and make a good example of and make a good point of what fear is in games. Then we'll be looking at what it is that makes these uh, examples work particularly well. What are the exact game mechanics? They'll likely be a lot of overlap between those two and then finally we'll be looking at how we can design fear for the future where we want to see the feature go the mechanic go and how we think it can be improved do you want to start us off or should i you should start okay i was trying to think of some good examples and it just so happens that i gave you a game this week that happens to be a great example of this you did sell me a game yes which is eternal darkness sanity's requiem which was a game on gamecube and it is still talked about today because it had this very unique feature, this insanity bar, sanity yeah. meter. I yeah. forget what it was called. And basically, in that game, when you became scared, as in your in-game character became scared, this sanity meter would fill up. And when it got to a certain point, weird things would start happening that would break the fourth wall, such as... I remember ones where it'd be like the volume would look like it was going down on your TV and it would it would mute. And there was one where it looked like your TV had switched off or the game had crashed. And there was one where uh, your head came off and you start reciting Hamlet. I, I remember this. Uh, even though Colin sold it to me this week, I have actually played a large amounts of it before. And yeah, it's, um, it's a really unpredictable mechanic. It, it's already quite a scary game without that. But I think there's just an extra layer yeah, of just unexpectedness to it. The point is that it's trying to f freak you out as a player. It's not... The fear comes from within the game, and I'll discuss that in a minute, but it also tries to bring fear to the, the player themselves by bringing the fear into the real world, and the confusion it's trying to psych you out in that way. That's very true, actually, and that's not... That's a very good point, which um, a lot of the examples I'll go to don't really deal with. I think most games tend to try and generate their fear in fiction. It's more that scary stuff is happening to the person in the world, and it just, almost by coincidence, it's also scaring you. Are you saying that I've just come up with an example that shits on all of your future examples? It doesn't shit on my future examples. My examples are still valid and correct. But it's an interesting point that, yeah, because it is so rare that it's, it's directly aiming at the player and the, and the player's real world, kind of blurring those boundaries. So yeah, it's approaching horror in a very unusual way. The thing is that is annoying about that, though, is they painted that system and have no desire to return to the eternal darkness story as far as I know, or the franchise even. And so we're never going to get that kind of sanity-based gameplay uh, again. I did not know that. It's quite disappointing, isn't it? That is, that is. Because I always wondered, because the GameCube uh, was a long time ago and, and that was quite an early game on it, I always wondered why we haven't seen this great game mechanic again. But that is why, allegedly. Ah, that's interesting. I mean, not done in a horror genre, but there is, or there was, a, a failed MMO-style game called Majestic, in which um, if the player signed up to this service, they would be bothered in the real world by the game they were playing. So if you signed up to Majestic, it would, for example, occasionally fax you and email you and all sorts of things like that. It was done more as a kind of conspiracy thriller. But it's interesting that people haven't really looked at that to try to scare you in real life yeah, through the game. I remember, because we spoke about this recently, I was saying that it'd be quite fun because I've worked on systems in the past where I've needed to implement SMS, text messaging. Yes. And I always thought it, it's something that's underused in a game. Imagine if it, like, especially subscription services, because then you've got the money to do it, if at the registration you put in your mobile phone number and you don't really think anything more about yeah. it. And then in the middle of the game you start getting missions through your phone and 
this is good for the second section though, where we talk about fear mechanics, or the third section where yeah, we yeah. design fear mechanics. No, it reminds me of a similar thing again, not related to fear mechanics, but it's just it's an interesting area to discuss anyway. But I believe it's the game Earthbound at some fairly innocuous stage in the game where you're not really paying attention, asks you what your name is in real life, and then at some point at the very end of the game, suddenly confronts you with your real name, and it's a moment of pant-shitting terror. It's just a bit of suddenly being aware that your name is Richard and then saying it to you. Until you realise that you entered a joke name. Yeah, if it, if it, if it just said, like, uh, you got to the conclusion of this epic journey, then it suddenly the text cock and balls appeared on the screen. That would ruin the effect somewhat. Okay, so we've already gone off on a tangent. Yes. So if I can just bring it back to Eternal Darkness. Um, and, okay, away from the sanity meter, but the fiction itself was interesting because it had this hub and spoke level design. Okay. So in the hub, you were a pretty blonde American young lady who was in a haunted house, very kind of um, Edgar Allan Poe. And there is fear there, but it's a very typical kind of teen American horror. Yeah. Like jumps and spooks and, you know, things that fall over and it's just a painting and it scares you. The kind of shock horror. But then you went into the levels that were set in various points in the past, and they always started out, or they, they normally started out with you just going about a person's every day-to-day life. Okay. But you know that shit is going to hit the fan soon. You, you know it's going to be scary. So it's always quite nice. It's always like the calm before the storm. And I think the expectation of fear in his levels is what makes Eternal Darkness a scary game. That kind of delaying the inevitable thing, it's definitely like a powerful approach. I think well, one of the best examples of it is Monolith Software's grossly underrated Alien vs. Predator 2, which obviously you know, is a very schlock, stupid sounding title. But that was a game in which you would play as a Marine and you obviously go to go fight some aliens. And those aliens are not present for the first hour of the game. All that would happen is that cats would suddenly run out in front of you, or pipes would fall from the ceiling, which have suspiciously curved kind of pipe bits that look exactly like aliens' heads. And it would delay and delay and delay the actual introduction of the aliens, to the point where you're on the knife edge just every time like a door suddenly opened. And then eventually they would explode out the ceiling and eat your face. And yeah, you know, you you finally got that. But which game was this? Alien vs Predator Two. It was. Oh, I never played it. I played the recent one, uh, Alien vs Predator vs Man. What uh, was it called? Alien vs Predator vs Man. I think is Alien vs Predator. Oh, they took away the. Well, number. I think I think Alien vs Predator is almost a podcast in itself, where we just try to track the history of this series and how many examples there are. I think Alien vs Predator 2 was the sequel to Rebellion's original Alien vs Predator on the PC, which in itself was the third Alien vs Predator game. Well, we may talk about franchise reboots in the future. I think we should, or just specifically about Alien vs Predator. Can you think of any other examples of scary games that you played? Um, Yeah, plenty. I think the best example that I'll give of scariness in games would be a uh, game called System Shock 2, which I believe you've not played. I've played its spiritual... Um, successful. Well, System Shock 2 and why System Shock is so scary and why Bioshock isn't so much will, I think, actually be quite an important thing to talk about once we get to the second part of uh, today's podcast. Um, System Shock 2 is one of the most genuinely, upsettingly scary games I've played. Um, I recollections of playing that when I was about uh, 15, 16 and having to stop and have a lie down because I reached a point where I was just so upset and I wasn't having any fun. But I, I had to just I had to 
That is really weird because I remember playing Bioshock, and it's not a game that I found particularly scary, but I did play it at night, and I needed to go out and get some food. And the area of North London that I lived in at the time was very, very nice. But I was scared in the real world just because of the kind of the tension that I'd okay. been yeah. experiencing in Bioshock for that prolonged period. Yeah, System Shock 2 had the uh, had the thing where I would play um, System Shock 2 by, um, by an open door. And I'd become increasingly scared by the open door and stuff that might spring up on me because I was playing System Shock 2. Um, and anyway... As a game, though, what makes System Shock 2 so scary is I probably... There's, there's two things. I think I'll, I'll come back to them a lot um, later on. I think first is the feeling of weakness, which um, is very important. Like you're, you physically are very weak. You've got a gun with very little ammunition, and you're just slightly pathetic. And I think what makes System Shock 2 so powerful is there's a kind of lack of predictability. When you walk around this game, uh, shooting baddies, collecting stuff, doing nice little RPG things, going around in quests uh, in this big alien spaceship thing. But as you defeat the enemies, the enemies are constantly respawning, and they're respawning at unpredictable places. And when they respawn, they just walk around and around the ship. They don't just stand there waiting for you to fight them. So you'll walk around, clear an enemy, clear an area, go back to that area later, and nothing will be happening, but you can hear in the distance the of automatic doors opening and closing. You know that there are enemies wandering around the ship somewhere, and it's that non-linear structure that it has, where you'll find yourself constantly going around the same areas, but never feeling safe. I think a problem that you'll find if you go back and play uh, Resident Evil uh, 1 and 2 especially, is outside of certain key scripted moments, there's a feeling of safeness that comes. The more you clear the Raccoon City police station, the more y you just feel incredibly safe. You'll run for that opening lobby area, knowing that that's the safest place in town. You cleared the zombies there at the beginning of the game, the zombies are never coming back. System Shock 2, you never have that. There is no safe place. Everywhere you clear past the second room of the game will almost immediately become repopulated the baddies, and you don't know where they are and when they kind of come and eat your head. So, in a way, it gets away with annoying game mechanics. Yeah, it, get, it gets away with respawning, which you know, respawning generally r makes me very upset. But this, I can't imagine System Shock 2 without the respawning. I think a horror game falls apart the moment that a, a player is in a horror situation, but they realise that they're totally safe. So you spoke about Resident Evil 1 and 2 there. Yes. Um, what did you think of Resident Evil 4? Resident Evil 4 is interesting, and I think that it's a brilliant game. Um, a very, very powerfully brilliant video game. But it is not in the slightest bit scary. I think it is scary in some sense. There is a certain fear when you hear a chainsaw coming across the air. Just that sound of it starting up. There's a kind of interesting, I don't know, dramatic tension to it. I think, yeah, you know, you're walking around exploring this kind of rustic European, you know, kind of village, and then you hear some sort of man leaping up the horizon going, Lord Sadler. Yeah, you, you kind of get a bit freaked out. But I think what made Resident Evil 4 not work for me as a horror game is that you feel too much like an empowered individual. You are decked out. You are decked to the shit with rocket launchers, machine guns, shotguns, pistols. You've even got your own personal cockney that will arrive at regular intervals to sell you new guns. What about the cold start in the village? That, I think, is... Yeah, well, because I, I, I was saying that, and the, the, the starting section only just occurred to me while I was talking, because the starting section is probably one of the... I think for me, one of the most defining moments of that gaming generation, I think, you know, you go into that village and there's nothing going on, and then you get attacked to all sides. You just have to survive for, I don't know, X minutes until the bell goes and then you're fine. And that 
is brilliant. And I think that works because it's early in the game. Resident Evil 4 works at its earliest. You don't understand what's happening. You have a pistol and a jacket and a mullet, and you have nothing really to your name. That's when it works. I mean, the more Resident Evil 4 goes on, the more you're aware of the situation, the more heavily armed you are, the less scary it is. It is true. It is definitely best at the start. And I was also thinking of another great moment, which is, again, when you're not empowered, is the first boss battle, which is with that sea monster. I don't know what it is. Oh, yes, the um, the weird... Yeah, the weird... I don't know why there's a sea monster in it, but yeah, the one you attack with the harpoons. Yeah, that's another great... I guess it's just a boss battle. It's not scary. It's just tense. It's... Yeah, I think I, I would say Resident Evil 4 is always more tense than it is scary. Even though the opening village section, I'm not, like, sweating, going, oh, God, this is so scary. It's more just, you're on edge. Which I think Resident Evil 5 tries to replicate, but sadly, I think, totally missteps it by just throwing so many crazy, crazy zombie men at you that it's just frustrating. Yeah, it's definitely more of an action game than a survival horror. Right, Richard, did you ever play the Saw video games? Um, I played a large majority of the original Saw. Some of the Saw 2 uh, flesh and bone, whatever it's called, has escaped me so far. I think you watched me play a lot of Saw 2. I, I think I saw some, but yes. The thing that annoys me about the Saw games is that I like them. That is weird, because I thought the Saw 1 was terrible. This is the thing, they are terrible games, but you can sense that there's a really good idea there, just waiting to be polished. It's... It's really bad game mechanics. It, it always comes down to one-hit kills, quick-time events, and s very basic puzzles. Like It's almost like an adult version of Professor Layton, which is like, this guy is going to die unless you can tell me how much this weighs compared to these two balls. I do think the idea of an adult Professor Layton is very exciting, but I think I probably f I'm thinking of it in a different way that you're thinking of it. And the thing about Saw is, I think, is the mechanic of Saw has been done before well, and that was the game called Condemned several years previously. It's kind of you just walk around punching tramps in, and then occasionally kind of solving simple logic problems. I wasn't sure exactly what it is you liked about them. I think it was the, the world that you, you do get drawn into it, and having seen the Saw films, it's very easy to, to get the suspension of disbelief. Okay, I have never seen the Saw films. So you kind of want it to be good, you kind of want to be part of the Saw universe, and y you can get into it. You know the Jigsaw Killer, you, you know that he's twisted, and these puzzles are as expected. But as a game, it just doesn't work, because it's so boring. For me, it was incredibly boring. Uh... It was like condemned with the tension surgically removed. And I also felt like there's nothing like where, where like a combat is appalling, where you feel incredibly like hobbled and unable to really respond in the way you want to. It was kind of it was a thing that always put me off the older Resident Evil games where they would insist up until like fairly recently. In fact, even as far as Resident Evil 5, they would insist on certain outdated, annoying mechanics on the on the supposed kind of argument that hobbling the player's ability to do certain things meant that it was scarier. And in Saw, your ability to interact and fight and move around correctly feels so, for lack of a better word, fucked. You can't really play it like you're supposed to, and it's, I guess maybe it's supposed to be scary, but it's just annoying. There's a game that I picked up recently in the Humble Indie Bundle 2. And it's a game of a series that I know that you love very much. And I haven't yet played it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, please tell me. It is Amnesia. Oh, okay. oh Amnesia for Darkness. Yes. Well, that's... that's uh, I'm, I'm sure it's on your script in front of you. It is. I think that you can't discuss fear in games without discussing Amnesia for Dark Descent. I think it's, it's brought fear back to games in a big way. So I haven't played it yet. 
because it doesn't run on my netbook, which is kind of to be expected. It is only a netbook. So I, I, I do mean to get around to it, but can you tell me a little bit about it? I, I, I've obviously heard and read a lot about it. How many of you have a Dark Descent? So that's it's kind of the first person horror game in which you play a man that wakes up um, in this big kind of castle. He has amnesia. All he knows is that he has a message, I believe from himself, telling him that he needs to go and get revenge on this man and kill this man. So he begins a Dark Descent down this building to find this guy and kill him. What makes Amnesia of a Dark Descent so scary is that you, you are utterly, utterly powerless. The team that made it had previously done work on a series of kind of fir similar first-person horror games called Penumbra. And I, through working on that series, they had learnt that basically the key tenant to horror was that the player is utterly, utterly weak. Uh, and in Amnesia, you, you have nothing. All you have is a torch, uh, which you can hold. And you have to walk around, and there are scary monsters, but very rarely they're scary monsters. And you walk around the dark being incredibly frightened and unable to defend yourself. I just realised it's not Amnesia that I picked up, it is Penumbra Overture. Ah, Penumbra Overture, okay. Which you said isn't a very good one because they've added... Well, it's got a combat system, right? Yeah, Penumbra Overture. So, um, the Penumbra Trilogy um, is a great thing to kind of play and look at in terms of seeing a developer kind of work out how to nail fear in games. When they do amnesia, they absolutely nail it. So Penumbra's got most of the basics in there. You play a relatively defenseless guy who walks around the dark with a limited light source. But occasionally it will give you like a something to fight with, like a little kind of axe and or a little like pickaxe or something. Um, and it immediately falls apart. I mean the combat is shit, which doesn't help. But it's just the, the sheer fact that you can eventually gain the ability to fight back means for so much of what makes it scary is ruined. And the fact that unlike Amnesia, Penumbra doesn't work on the suggested fear so much. I mean, you're genuinely fighting demonic dogs and demonic spiders. Which, you know, is kind of the thing where you're afraid of something because you don't know about it. As soon as you know about it, uh, there's a whole layer of fear which is gone and never comes back. Penumbra, within like 50 minutes of started, you realise, oh, okay, I'm mostly hiding from little dogs. And then once I get a pickaxe, I'm going to come back and I'm going to smack their heads in. Okay, so that might be a good, uh, that might be a good point to go from... Looking at talking about games that we have enjoyed and make a good point of fear to talking about the mechanics that make fear work because what you've just said there is combat in combat in a game in which you're trying to make something in, in which you're trying to make it scary is a bad thing. Yes, I think. Uh, I mean, I've got down here that there are uh, to be honest two main things that for me I think make a game scary and weakness is for me definitely the primary one. And the ability to fight back and to have guns and swords, whatever, the strength that comes from that immediately kills fear. For me. I'll certainly agree with that, but did you play Siren Blood Curse? I did play Siren Blood Curse. And that is a game in which you can fight. There is a combat system in there, but you are quite weak, and to fight is... You, you're always fighting for a position of weakness, and I think that works. You, you can have combat systems, but it is true that you need to be weak. Yeah, I think... Siren Blood Curse is, is a tricky one for me because I think it's rubbish, but it's really powerfully, interestingly rubbish. See, I quite enjoyed it. Well, I mean, it's got, it's, it's got this ability to fight. And I mean, when you can fight in a game, and it's trying to be scary, but that ability to fight is so annoyingly redundant and pathetic that it, uh, so we can almost detract from the quality of the game. Because the fact that in Penumbra, which is building up a kind of a really good feeling of fear, ultimately, sadly, ends of you crouched in tunnels, failing the mouse wheel up and down, trying to hit a spider with a pickaxe. I mean, to me, that kind of just detract... If all I could do was run away from that giant spider, 
it would have been far, far superior to me. I, I think that they're sort of aware of this and they're trying to play with it because there are sections in Siren Blood Curse where you play a young girl and yeah. in which it, it becomes more like a stealth game and you have to run around. You, there's no way of attacking it and as soon as a monster spots you, you are essentially dead. Yeah, I think the um the sections of oh yeah, Siren Black is you play this small girl, I can't remember why or what's happening in that game, it was too long ago. But yeah, uh, uh, for me the parts when Siren really works, you have this mechanic. Um so if those who are listening don't know, Siren Blood Curse is based around this idea of a called a sight jack, where you could essentially jump into the the mind of the zombies patrolling the level and see through their eyes. And basically by seeing what they can see you work out where they are and where you are in relation to them and avoid them. Um, in these sections of the game, we play this little girl, you have to entirely rely on that sight jack, and if an enemy caught you, you would just have to run away from them. And from that's when it worked. I think the fact that you could always, in a fix, most of the time, turn around and just vaguely punch the zombie until the AI got a bit confused and they stood there, really kind of just ruined it. Do you think it's better with a combat system in which to fight would be a risk? So that you're in a situation where you can fight or flight and... In the situation where you can only run away, then the the game isn't as deep. Where a system whereby you could stay and fight, but possibly pay the pay the price for doing so. Maybe I think. Yeah, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not going to suggest that if a game is attempting to convey horror, then it cannot have a combat system. I mean, that would be a silly thing to suggest. But I think if you realise that the enemies you are facing can basically be defeated if I just hit press the square button enough times, even if it's stupid and risky and I'm kind of flailing about, I can eventually clobber this baddie to death. I think it, it stops working. I think you can either have no combat system or there's, you know, alternatives like um, the recent Silent Hill Shattered Memories, a very, very brilliant uh, Wii PS2 game. Uh, you would occasionally go into these kind of horrible nightmare dream things where all you could do is run away from the enemies. But if enemies caught you, then you could kind of struggle with them and throw them and knock them down and throw them into things. But you could never actually beat them. So... You didn't have that kind of feeling of, of annoying idiocy where you are confronted by something but you can't defend yourself. But in the same way, you never felt like you could actually win. A bit like System Shock 2? Yeah, it's just sort of thing. You can, you can defeat enemies at like great personal expense, but you know that they're, it's, not a means, it's not a means to an end. Um, if you defeat a baddie in System Shock 2, you know that someone's going to respawn in about three minutes to take his place. So what you need to do is just get out of there, do what you need to do, and run away. So there's kind of two design mechanics here. You can either have um, a combat system in which the risk is so high and you know it's not a means to an end, like System Shock 2, or you can just have no combat system at all. And in, in Siren Blood Curse, I see your point, the combat system is pointless. Yeah, I mean, having no combat system does run risks of its own. I mean, as much as I rave about it, amnesia isn't perfect. If you get into a position where basically a bad guy suddenly bursts out the door and he's all flailing of his weird octopus mouth and it's very upsetting, all you can, if you can't run away, all you can do is basically crouch down in front of him and wait to die. And there's a moment now, just before you die, and you die very quickly, where you feel, this is slightly idiotic. If this is real life, I would at least go down punching and kicking a little bit. So there is, you do run that risk where if you feel so useless that you, you stop being like a real person, you get back to that Resident Evil argument I was talking about earlier, where you balk a player's ability so much to make them less powerful than a regular person just to try and make the game scarier. I mean, the only reason in Resident Evil 4 and even 5 you can't reload while moving is supposedly because that makes the game scarier. What in fact makes you seem like is an absolute idiot who despite 
being a trained soldier with years of m you know military experience behind him, was unable to reload a gun while also walking. It is a good point, and it might seem silly that it is that way, but loose controls and the not being in control is what makes games scary. In Siren Blood Curse, you don't walk very normal. In Saw, as you say, you, you can't really, you don't ever feel in full control of your character. And that is scary because you know that if anything is going to happen, it's going to yeah. be very hard for you to get away from. But I think, I think, as I've said before, it's a delicate balance between creating a sense of human vulnerability and just being an incredibly annoying video game. Because if in Siren Blood Curse, um, you have a certain amount of inherent weakness from the fact that you are playing a nine-year-old girl. Nine-year-old girls, as we know, are quite weak. Um, and that's fine, so you know that I can't run that fast. If a giant zombie nurse attacks me, my ability to fight back is fairly limited. But there's a difference between that and someone playing a, a soldier with years of military experience who can't reload a gun while walking, or Resident Evil's ultimate trick, which is that, of course, with the fixed camera angles from the old Resident Evil, you can't see enemies that are coming towards you in certain rooms. Now, a person unable to see things that are coming towards them, but they can see what's above their own heads, is a degree of weakness that has nothing to do with them as a person. It's to do with uh, a game mechanic, a game mechanic originally a technological restriction, um, later kept in some games just because of blind ignorance, I suppose. Yeah, which is not in any way enhanced, in not in creating a sort of human vulnerability, it's creating a kind of game hoisted crutch that it's really just going to upset you. Yeah, but we spoke about this earlier and we said that horror games can get away with breaking decent game mechanics. They can do, but I think, I think sometimes they can benefit experience, sometimes they can't. I don't think, there are no hard, fast rules here. I mean, we, you know, we could go through every game ever and say this game was allowed to go with this, but this it couldn't. I guess within System Shock 2 itself, a good example of what I mean is that the spawning in System Shock 2 added to the fear because it meant you were never safe, and it also it meant you didn't have a ridiculous belie belief somehow that you would won because you'd killed all the monsters on the ship. But less successful, the System Shock 2 had a weapon degrading function, where basically weapons you fired would get worse over time and eventually break. The problem with this mechanic is that it was shit because it would happen stupidly quickly. You would fire two clips of your pistol and your pistol would break. Now I'm not, uh, I don't know much about guns in real life, but I don't think pistols break after firing two clips of ammunition. And it turns out when you read interviews with the developers that there actually was an in-fiction reason for this, but um, the alien kind of hive that had taken over the ship had converted the air to be like the alien's planet so that it was degrading metallic objects. But that's never actually related to you in the game. So that, for me, is an example of, even within a game that does other things great, it has a, a, a weakness that feels entirely like a, like a developer kind of manufactured crutch that has no basis in reality, where I've got my new shotgun, yeah, I've got new shotgun! And if I had two shots, my shotgun goes, ah, oh, my new shotgun's broken! I think, that's not scary, that just gets on my tits. I don't agree with you. I think you uh, are being unreasonable. I'm fine with, you know, games are an escapism, and I'm fine with them breaking real-world rules if it aids in making the game scarier. If the game's, main, if the game's main focus is to be scary and create fear, then I'm fine with them breaking the game mechanics. I mean, the fact that you might find a game mechanic annoying sort of adds to the fact that it might be scary because I, I imagine, I'm not a psychologist, but I imagine being annoyed isn't that far away from being scared. Uh, there's always the 
goal, which is the kind of the more high-minded concept. I make my game scary. Make my game make the player think about their life and their place in the universe. But you've always got the more important base concern, which is make sure this game is not annoying and fun, or you know, replace fun with immersive, or you know, obviously it's a bit more complicated than that. But I think you, if the only way to serve the, the higher goal, you know, being scary, is to annoy the shit out of the player, then I think you fail in creating a worthwhile video game. Um, for me, Resident Evil 5 utterly fails to work because everything they're doing in an attempt to make, to bring up that sense of tension, which is make it so you can't reload while walking, make it so that you are unbelievably gang raped by enemies where you can't even see where you're going, there are so many on screen. You know, things like, things like where even simple mechanics like jumping from one place to another involves you having to stop, press X, wait for a canned animation, all these things that are supposed to make you feel weaker to create tension are just annoying. Okay, interesting. Well, I mean, you, you've yes. made your case. Okay, so I, when I was at university, loved horror films. And a lot of, I think, the greatest, the, the film director that I still enjoy the most from that period, and a lot would not call him horror, is um, Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. And I think a lot of lessons can be learned from him. His best films... And the best horror films in general are the build-up, the suspense, and we talked about this earlier. In Rear Window, this is a big spoiler alert if you haven't seen any version of the film, particularly the Christopher Reeve version, which is great. In Rear Window, when you find out that the person who he's been observing is a murderer and is coming to attack him... You mean Raymond Burr from Perry Mason? Then the fear is gone. The film is... is now you're you're comfortable. Now you're thinking, right? He's the killer. I I I hope he doesn't kill or does kill him. I don't really care. But the the point is, it's the suspense. It's it's the the build up that is what or what makes the film tense, fearful. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I can definitely buy that. I think, as I said before, you know, there are are examples of it. Um, I think I guess in a game, it's kind of hard to pull because obviously games are told game stories are told over much longer periods of time. And uh, you can only build up that sense, that suspense for so long before you need to have that kind of, that big moment. You know, like the intro of Adam was saying earlier, the intro to Half-Life, which, I mean, pushes it to a good hour before shit goes bad. And I think if they'd gone on much longer than that, they probably would have lost a lot of players. That's true, but um, I played the first Fear game. I didn't complete it, but I played... I guess I put in a good few hours with it. I played fair, yes. And I think that did a really good job because I remember in the first hour, there's a lot of weird stuff going on and it. it's like a build-up. There's never that release where it's just like, right, now you're really in the shit. It's like you've got these generic FPS levels, but then there's always these weird unsettling things going on at the side and these weird... I mean, there's, there's times where you, you see the girl, whatever her name is, walk past doorways and she flashes up in front of your eyes and you end up in these weird corridors, but then you're put back in, and it's just building up the tension slowly. Fear, and fear does that, and Fear 2, in fact, does the exact same thing. And it works to an extent. I think, yeah, there's a kind of, a lot of, I don't know what's happening here. Why does a little girl keep appearing in this lift? Oh, I'm scared. But then it kind of pushes it and pushes it and pushes it to the point where it stops working, where I think it'd probably be a good, I think it'd be a good thing to segue into, like, uh, a point I was going to make, because what Fear what becomes apparent in fear is what makes games scary to a large extent is the unknown and 
in fear, there is this kind of this huge sense of the unknown. You don't know why, but there's a kind of there's a psychic commander guy called Paxton Fettel who appears and he can psychically make people's heads explode. Alma, this little girl, can appear and she can also make people's heads explode because that's kind of a running theme of the series. And it's scary to a point, but then it just keeps happening. So the so by the end of the game, you're kind of you when you open a door and Alma is there, you kind of go, oh Alma. Uh, and you, you're kind of more surprised when you, when you open the door and get in the lift and Alma doesn't appear to go, oh, scare of a little, little face. Yeah, I think you can only push that build up so far because you reach this stage where the unknown becomes the known and then it becomes drudgery. And it was never a problem in film. It's not a problem in Hitchcock films specifically or in a lot of the best horror films because in an hour and a half running time, it's not going to push that opening what's happening thing for too much of its duration. Are you saying that this is a lesson that can't really be learnt from films I think to an games? extent it could be learnt. I mean, it could be done brilliantly as a kind of opening gambit. So I was saying, oh, I think Alien vs. Predator 2 thing does it brilliantly, and that game doesn't get half the kudos I think it deserves. But it's not something that can be sustained, because games last ten hours and a film lasts two. And games need to do something beyond that opening unknown. Do you have any more mechanics that you'd like to talk about before we go into section three? Well, as well as weakness, I think the other main pillar for me of scariness in games is uh, unknown. And not knowing or understanding what is happening in the world. And this made a massive, massive sense of fear. Eternal Darkness, which we started this podcast discussing, is a really good example of this. Because if you read Eternal Darkness, if you look through the manual, it does mention the insanity beat to come somewhat annoyingly. And it mention the stuff happens, but it doesn't say... At one, at one point, you, it, the game might tell you if it's about to, to wipe your memory card, do not be afraid, this is merely an insanity effect. It just lets you walk around, you walk down a corridor, um, and it suddenly says, deleting your memory card. And you absolutely freak out, because you don't know that's going to happen. Nothing in the game has prepared you for that. And that is going to be so powerfully brilliant. One of my favourite uh, video games I've ever played is one called uh, Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl. It's like a, a Russian kind of first-person shooter RPG set in uh, Chernobyl in the future where kind of this weird radiation has made these monsters appear and people called stalkers go to this, go to Chernobyl to kind of try and basically find radioactive treasure. And in Stalker, what makes it brilliant and is a thing that can actually, is quite typical of like a lot of European games, which tend to have quite a different design aesthetic, it doesn't bother to explain anything to you. All you're aware of in Stalker is that you are in the zone and there are bad things in the zone. But at one point, you're walking through this dungeon, and then boxes start being thrown at your head. And you stand there for a while going, this silly European game with their bad QA departments, left all these physics bugs in the game. And then you're going to stand there for a while going, oh god, I think I've been attacked. And then you start running around like a crazy person, realising that wherever you hide in this level, there's an invisible thing you can't see or fight. We can go through walls, up levels, and lifts. We can just throw shit at you and slowly fl flick you to death with paint cans. And nothing about the game, nothing about the game warned you about this. Nobody tell, goes up to you and goes, "Hey, be careful about that invisible thing that throws paint cans at you." He's he, he's a tricky one, that guy. And I think when you don't, when games don't take advantage of this, don't realise this, you can see great horror games go so wrong. For example, uh, a slightly more obscure, but again, Eastern European game is Metro 2033. It was like a, it was I think a, a console PC FPS from I think last year. Uh, in which it was a post-apocalyptic future where everyone on Earth lived in the Russian underground train system, weirdly. And in the Russian underground train system, there are ghosts, which I presume isn't the case in the real one. And there's these things where you, where you can leave the, the, basically the shadows or silhouettes of ghosts walking, like 
like a procession through the underground and it should be absolutely scary it should be one of the high points of fear-based gaming in the 21st century unfortunately it's entirely ruined because while this is happening an npc walking uh, walking alongside you um in the world's most awful thick english russian accent is going hey comrade those are the ghosts that are walking down the corridor do not be afraid of them now if you don't touch them nothing will happen and you think yes metro 2033 developers you've just ruined the potential for an unbelievably scary moment of not knowing what this world is about. But you spend most of this game accompanied by a kind of grizzled old underground tube working soldier who knows all of the things that live here and proceeds to basically one by one tell you about them. So by the time you come across them, you go, oh, that's that thing that Dimitri was warning about. That's, the, that's that monster that kills you if you don't look at its face. And you think, well, good, you ruined that one because I knew it was coming. It ain't scary. Of course, you can take the unknown to a very literal sense, and this is very common. In fact, it doesn't even require discussing, but a lot of games love to force you into the darkness and give you torches that run out of batteries. Okay, so now we're going to go into section three, which is where we talk about where we talk about where we would like this feature to go, how we think we can improve it. And Richard, as the designer, maybe you could uh, start us off. Well, I was thinking about the uh, mechanics that uh, we were discussing, the mechanics of fear, to give them their excellent name. And this, this idea of player weakness occurs to me as something that isn't pushed far enough. I think you've got to look at really bold ways which you can make a, the player feel out of control. So what about games that are you play people with physical disabilities? A video, a, a video horror game where you play a deaf person or a blind person. Now that you've got 3D TVs, I mean, I know they're not standard, it'd be great if there were points where y you could block off one eye, or yeah. you could, or with surround sound, you could block off half the channels Yeah, hearing. Yeah. I mean, you could, and I don't, I don't know if this is possible, maybe it is, if two players are looking at the same TV with their own 3D glasses, could they not be shown entirely different images? It has been discussed. I, I, I don't really know the, the technical feasibility, but... Uh, I would say it is possible, but it's already been poo-pooed. Okay, that's annoying. Um, I do hate it when great ideas are poo-pooed. Well, it doesn't matter. We're being open-ended here. Yeah, but there's, there's so much you could do where um, uh, a player can't see or is very barely able to see, and maybe one other player can see. And admittedly, um, I'm slightly describing the premise of a seminal BBC children's game show, Nightmare, but one player could be trying to direct the other player who... You know, has perfect hearing. Like he's got the he's got the hot shittest surround sound system ever, so he can hear every tiny movement of those monsters and drips of water in the unknown. But he can't see a thing. You could do this with online. You could do it easier online. Yeah, we want like the, I think the, the ultimate uh, multiplayer game experience when one player stares at a totally blank monitor, and the other, another player stares at a, a sumptuously generated 3D horror game. You could do this game now by just two of you, one blindfolds themselves, and the other person tells you how to manipulate well, the controller. Well, I mean, there, there's more ca I mean, you know, there's more mechanics we could put in here. I mean, it wouldn't simply be a case of what one pl player two is simply shown a pop-up message telling you to now turn off your monitor. I mean, there, there would be more to it than that. I think um, that distressing the player and really, really freaking them out is where this feature should go. And like we said earlier, Getting data, out, extracting data out of the user that they think is is redundant, yeah. and then completely fucking with their minds off that. So as we said, mobile phone number, and then in the middle of the night, texting them, saying I need your help or some shit's going down. Imagine like an evil version of Animal Crossing where you just it's all nice, and then you get a text in the middle of the night. It's like 
some shit's gone down, man. And then you, you boot up the game, and everyone is in your village has been murdered. And then there's a, that little dog playing guitar at the train station going, what the fuck? What's even more important is, I know on the PS3, and I'm sure it's the same on the Xbox, is that you can connect to like social networks, Facebook and Twitter. It'd be great if you pulled down the data and pushed it into the game. There's a great deal of data out there that I think could be manipulated into the game to make it more believable and really psych you out. I was quite impressed by, um, I can't actually remember its name anymore, any details about it, so this is going to be a great point. Um, in the indie game but, um, recently where failure meant that random files were deleted from your PC. Oh yeah, I remember this game. It was it was like a kind of scrolling side shoot and every time you um, shot like an enemy it deleted a file from your computer. Yeah, and I I like that idea of playing a PC game where it is physically, I mean, and all PC games can be aware of what's on your hard drive, uh, and being aware of that, um, uh, if you know, talking to a character in a horror game, like imagine going into a, a tent and there's like a soothsayer and she's going to read your future, and then she suddenly makes direct reference to those Konami Metal Gear Solid save games you've got in that folder. I mean, you go, what? This is This is witchcraft. So you think you can really scare the player literally by threatening to delete their important files? I reckon. Because uh, you know we were discussing, uh, in our first episode we were discussing moral decisions in games and how there's so little weight to moral decisions in games because I guess you only think of things in terms of the reward and there's no real consequences other than different lines of dialogue. What if someone's, there was kind of a typical, you can either, you can either give me the money or, or I shoot your wife. Fine, shoot my wife. But what if he said, I shoot my wife, and a floating above her head, heavy rain style, is C colon slash slash window system 32. Okay, so unfortunately, that is all the time we've got. Oh. It, it, just enough time for me to say that if you want to email with any comments or suggestions, you can do it at gamingbydesign at gmail.com or pop along to the blog, gamingbydesign.blogspot.com. Uh, we'll be back next time where we literally don't know what we're going to be talking about yet. So thanks again for listening.